Hey, everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Wilber. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Specian. Mike, how are you doing? Eric, I'm doing outstanding. Good. Well, I've got one thing that's either going to excite you or give you a little bit of depression. Fire away. I saw my first foliage report of the year this week. Foliage or or weather report? Foliage. Foliage report. Foliage okay. report, yes. Go the, ahead. It's in northern Alaska. Okay. But, so in northern Alaska, the, the leaves are changing. So mm. we've got some time. But still, that's the first foliage report of the year, and it's coming our way in what? Maybe three weeks, four weeks. The main point is, is that, well, we still got some more summer here to do. Fall, winter, they're right around the corner. It's time to start looking at the winter and start preparing for it because three months, you might be on the snow. Well, in three months, you better be. we will be on snow. <laughs> but you know what's really wild? My wife mentioned this to me, and I took a look yesterday. I want everybody to look up the pine trees right now and the amount of pine cones in them. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Old, old wise tale. When there's a lot of pine cones, it's going to be a harsh winter. Okay, good. There's one so, for you. Yeah, there's one. But it, another thing I was thinking about the other day, as we all know, this has been some torrential downpour rainstorm year i have never seen tropical rains come through new england like i have this year but that three inches of rain i think it was in north andover massachusetts the other day do you know what that turns into in snow Mm -hmm. tell me tell me tell (laughs) you well the rule of thumb is for one inch you get 10 inches so that's 30 inches of snow in Mm -hmm. the merrimack valley Bring it, baby. Well, there's also, and I and I hate these, well, I don't hate them, but I dislike these pre season previews about the West is going to be cold and snowy. The Northeast is going to be wet and wintry. And they come fast and furious. But, you know, the Farmer's Almanac has been around for 200 years or something like that, right? They're one of us. They're New Englanders. So we do tend to sort of trust them a little bit more in terms of their preseason forecasts. And do you know what the Farmer's Almanac is saying about winter coming up? Fire away. In fact, they're saying it's going to be cold and snowy, of course. I think they may have said that last year. They were a little bit off. But the thing I thought was the coolest about their progn- pro- boom, about their predictions is that the season's going to start with a few, a few blizzards. So this, if the Farmer's Almanac is correct, this is going to be a season quite unlike last season even if we could reverse it right you get the the snow early but then you get the snow late so is that better than last year i don't know it, it it's all it's all so much the farmer's almanac gets me twisted in these little pretzels i think the, the main point we've got to say though is that winter is around the corner it's not just saying some easy to say catchphrase winter is sort of around the corner well i'm going to give you one even better Prestige weather. It's been popping up on every ski shop's website, on Facebook, everywhere. This is what the forecast is for this winter by PrestigeWeather.com. Worst of winter, straight up the mid-Atlantic through southern Vermont, all of New Hampshire, and Maine. Huge snowstorms right up through Pennsylvania, New York, into northern Vermont. Uh, They are predicting we are going to get it. Oh, you know what? I'm going with it. (laughs) Well, the Farmer's Almanac has even put out winter weather advisories. Okay, so like an East Coast storm affecting the Northeast in New England states will bring snowfall, cold rain, and then frigid temperatures during the second week of February. That sounds accurate. That sounds like the kind of storm that Massachusetts is known for in February. Another East Coast storm will bring a wintry mix to this area during the first week of March. And a possible late season snowfall over the high terrain of New England during the third week of April won't be a fun April Fool's Day prank. Well, it'll be plenty fun, trust me, if we have a blizzard in the third week of April. Again, a lot of these predictions are just kind of off the wall. Just throw a wet piece of paper on on the wall and see if it sticks. But to your point, it has been such a wet winter 
that there is a little bit of backing here that says that some of these predictions may not be out, out there, out, that says some of these predictions just may not be that outlandish. You know what? If you remember last January, we had moisture. If that moisture comes again, like it did last January, in a different form, if we can get the temperatures where they need to be, that magic 32 or 33 or lower, it could be an incredible season. You, you know what gets me, though? What? Is when the snow comes in November and we get that 30 or 40-inch dump, and all of a sudden there is, it's skiable everywhere. My biggest problem is being ready for it because when it turns on early, you've got no time ski-wise to build to that level. Right. How are you going to do it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, last year, last, last year, last couple of years in particular, I wasn't really in the best shape for skiing and, and it was noticeable. Um, this summer I've already made some, some adjustments in, in my, in my running schedule and making sure that I'm, I'm carving time out uh, just because I don't want to be where I was last year, right? Like having trouble getting up because I'm 10 pounds overweight or having trouble navigating that tree because I, I, I didn't exactly work on my legs too much. And, and, and those are little things that come, see, come season play big. And the more I can do to prepare right now, whether it's running three or four or five miles a day or just doing some push-ups or, or, or lifting weights or doing something to get ready for the season. Because I don't want to be one of those people that says once it's October and the leaves start falling going, oops, I should probably get in shape now. That's kind of too late, right? I think if you start in September, you've got a good two months to start and to get yourself into a cycle. And that's where we are now. It's time to start working out, folks. Well, we're in the three-month window right now. Three months. We're going to be on snow. Killington World Cup will already be done in three months. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is absolutely time to stop making excuses. I understand, Eric, you got to take the kids here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> Have I mentioned but that? I am so tired of excuses from people. And that is why we have a special guest today for this purpose. Yeah, Doug Lewis, I think, you know, the, the name... The name means a lot in New England skiing. Obviously, a, a legendary Vermont skier who grew up here, part of the U.S. Olympic team. Sorry, part of the U.S. ski team for almost eight years, and just the perfect source for all things skiing, and, and in particular, getting prepared for the season, both mentally, physically. He's going to join us next, and we're going to have a great conversation with Doug coming up right after this. All right, welcome back into the pod. I've got a long introduction here for our next guest to so just kind of settle in, but the resume is too long not to, to edit, really. We've got Doug Lewis. Doug is the former World Cup skier, Olympian, Vermonter, UF, UVM grad, you name it. He grew up on the slopes of Middlebury Snow Bowl, where his mom was an instructor, and then went to Green, Green Mountain Valley School, two-time Olympian in 1984 and 1988. In 1985, he won the bronze in downhill at the World Championships, the first ever World Championship medal for an American in downhill. Lewis spent almost eight years on the U.S. ski team and collected two U.S. National Downhill Championships, 1986-1987. And you may also recognize him from NBC, where he has been, been an alpine ski racing analyst for the network covering World Cups, World Championships, and the Olympics. These days, he helps run elite team camps and programs to build complete athletes by teaching the concepts of sports physiology, sports psychology, and sports nutrition. Now in its 32nd year, inspiring and educating young athletes. This year, they have seven elite team alums on the U.S. ski and snowboard team, including someone named Michaela Schifrin. She's up and coming. You're going to hear about her someday. Trust me. 2007 inductee into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Please welcome to the show, Doug Lewis. Doug, welcome. It's great to be here. I, although I live in Park City now, my heart and skiing soul is back east for sure. Well, welcome, Doug. I hear you spend a little time in New England still throughout the year. Yeah, I still run elite team conditioning camps. We now run them at KMS, right at Killington Mountain School. And I tell you, when my wife and I fly in or drive into Vermont, the heart rate goes down, the heart the blood pressure goes down and it just feels like home. This year, 
as better than I, June and July was some wet home time spent there. It rained a lot. It sure did. Well, we're glad to have a New England boy back on the show here. Can you take us back to your early days of skiing? Where'd you ski out of? Give us an overview. Yeah, I was super lucky. My mom was a ski instructor, part-time ski instructor at the Middlebury College Snowball, where both my parents went to school. And so weekends, we're, we're piling in the car early with my three siblings, and we just spent, all I remember about growing up is being on the slopes of the Green Mountains, specifically Middlebury College Snowball. And it was just fun because there was three elements, right? We were part of this ski club. So it was just chasing my older siblings, my older siblings' friends, and just trying to keep up with everybody. And we just skied everything. Middlebury Snowball used to have a 35-meter and a 50-meter Nordic chump. So in the spring, because we were know we were going to get our pass pulled, in the spring, we'd go in, hike it, look around, and take the 50-meter with alpine skis as a 12-year-old. So it was the best way to grow up, just chasing this team. I also found out that I loved trying to be perfect on skis, right? I love skills. I love drills. I tried to master one ski skiing, helicopters, whatever it is I was into trying to be the best. And then at that point also, and this is what you need to be a champion, I found out that I'm pretty competitive. I need to win everything. And so those three combos just had this special sauce mixture of, of getting me on the track to be, to be in the, an Olympian. Yeah, I, I think my wife and, and I met at college in uh, St. Mike's some, some almost 30 years ago. And she repeats your same refrain there about every time she enters the state, her blood pressure just goes right down. After 30 years of visiting there, at least trying to get there at least once or twice a year, she repeats that very same thing. So retirement will, uh, will be up there and whenever that may be. But, you know, that, that for that very reason that we do feel that same exact experience of just being in Vermont and having it be this sort of not necessarily relaxing, but comfortable. But it, it's a comfortable place to be. Yeah, there's just no pretense. People are who they are. They drive what they drive. They live where they live and they enjoy the mountains. Like I was there this summer and I'm running on the long trail between Pico and Killington. And there's a, a group of people. There was just runners and bikers and hikers and and that's what Vermont's about to me is just getting outside and pushing limits and, and being real. That's so it. I'm sorry. So we often hear about East Coast skiers being better racers. And I think you're a testament to that. Can you explain why so many great skiers come out of the Northeast? Well, that's changing, unfortunately. And we can talk about that. Okay. Uh, I think East is, is, is lagging a little bit, but uh -oh. for sure, growing up and sorry to the Vermont ski industry, but you got to, it is just nasty, right? You're in rain, you're in snow, you're in sleet, you're in minus 40, you're the next day is 34 degrees and slushy. You just learn to be tough and gnarly and ski everything, whether it's glare ice where you look down and you can see your reflection or whether it's just mud and rocks and, and not that it's always like that, but that part of it. And if you can grow up skiing that and enjoying that and looking forward to those tough days on the mountain, the green mountains, I think you'll be able to not only ski anywhere as a quote unquote regular skier, but as a racer, it gave me such an advantage. I remember this, this is a great story. I remember Tommy Moe, Tommy Moe was just getting on the team as I was leaving. So I was like the veteran and there's this, this culture of passing along the the culture and the lessons of what it's like to be on the U.S. ski team to the younger racers. So we were at Garmisch. Now, Garmisch is in Germany. It, it can be, if it's easy weather, it's the easiest course ever. It's kind of a tucker. But if it's nasty, like it is a lot, it's one of the toughest. And I just remember getting off the lift at the top. We we're going to inspect Tommy Mo, probably 19 years old. And we go over and it is the slickest, iciest, Vermont ice, nasty, surface you can imagine you couldn't even kind of side slip on it and we we're at the start getting ready to inspect and he looks down and it's just super icy and he looks at me he's like are we gonna run this and i'm like tommy this is what it's all about like you better learn how to run this ice because that's that's where we're going to be tested on world cup and of course tommy won the olympic gold but this is it was a wake-up call for the out west skiers when they 
first get onto World Cup when every day is the toughest conditions you can imagine. And that's what I grew up doing. That's awesome. It, well, New England gives you something different every hour, not every day, which is kind of, which is kind of cool. And you saw it at GMVS where you went, you saw it at Sugarbush, but you see it up and down the green and the white mountains. You mentioned what's, what's going on. Why did you say Eastern skiers aren't the predominant anymore? You made that comment. Yeah, I think in the in the race world, I'm talking right. about the that's, race world. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. I, mean, I think the most skiers you have now are for coming out of Squaw Valley. And that, that if you dive deep a little bit into that, they have this culture of free skiing, big mountain, powder, trees. It's skiing everything, but, you know, it's a, it's a different snow. It's a different aspect. Then it may switch to Colorado. I think in the east, I think we may have lost a little. And I don't know why I don't, I can't, I don't have that magic ball to say why, but one reason is there's a lot more academies everywhere, right? Sure. They be just three. It was Berg, GMBS and Stratton. Now there's academies everywhere. So ski racers are coming from everywhere, but why as a state, as a region, we are lagging a little bit on putting people on the US ski team. It's, it's very interesting to me. I don't know what it is. Maybe a return to that grit, a return to New England skiers training and bonding together as a group might be needed. That's that's just me going off the top of my head. Well, we we love to hear the opinions and the ideas out there. That's we're only going to get better if if we hear them. With that being said, tell us a bit about the elite team. We're going into true training time for skiers right now. What's the elite team all about? So I retired in 19, a long time ago, 88. And a good friend of mine, Craig Sauerbeer, who still coaches up at Burke Mountain Academy, he came to me and said, let's start a camp that focuses on three things that are usually often overlooked. Sports psychology, and we can talk about that, probably being the most important skill base that you need as a champion. Sports physiology, understanding what's going on in your body, and sports nutrition. Those three things are talked about a lot, but they're not fought a lot. And so that's what elite team really is trying to teach, right? So when I won my medal, there was probably 12 athletes that could have won that race that day. They 12 athletes that were as good as skiers that could win that race, right? So what's the differentiation on a championship run? What, what makes champions? Because if you take skiing out of it, because they can all ski the same, right? It becomes about sports psych, sports nutrition, and sports physiology, right? It's arriving strong, agile, with power and capacity to make it down the hill. It it's being at the start that's fueled, right? Making sure you have the right energy, hydrated. Because if you're just, say, 3% dehydrated, it affects your performance up to 5%. 5% on a two-minute downhill, you're on the second page. Right. So that's it's strong. It's it's physical. It's nutrition. But then most importantly, on race day, I was confident. I was able to focus. I was ready to risk. All those are skills that I thought and Craig Sauerbeer thought we need to teach these young athletes. So that's what we teach. Self-awareness, goal setting, confidence, focus, failure relaxation, journaling. Those are the things that I have spent the last 32 years teaching. And luckily there's a lot of athletes that have responded. That's great. And, and what do you enjoy most about mentoring them? This, this next generation that's coming. I, there's so many things seeing, helping them commit, like really commit where you feel that commitment in your gut to their goals. Goals are so motivating. They're so important. So we, we talk a lot about goals. One of the things that I really love is these kids, especially nowadays, and we can talk about that because I've seen kids change over the 30 years, but they come in with not that self-confidence. Oh, I'm going to try a new thing that's going to make me a little bit passive, but to get them to push their limits, to jump off. For example, at Killington, we have this airbag that they do flippy twirly things in on skis. Well, in the summer, we get to just jump off, right? It's like 20 feet high. But to see these athletes nervous, freaked out, right? 
and they want to jump, but they can't jump. And, they, and we go through this process with them and we get them to jump. And all of a sudden, we've just changed a life. That kid now has more confidence and confidence is key. Who doesn't want to be at the start of a ski race with a little bit more confidence? And so to see that, to, for me, that makes it all worthwhile. You know, that, that's interesting. I want to go back to where you said the kids have changed over the last 30 years. And I was, gonna, I was wondering about that because you go back 30 years, sports nutrition, sports physiology, these are terms that are very foreign to everybody, right? 30 years later, they're probably not, like you said, talked about as much as they should be, or we don't really know what they are. So can you take us into like, what's training a kid in 1994, like versus in 2023? Right. Well, the biggest thing is no phones back then. Yep. There you uh, go. As probably 10 years ago, we were the one of the first, but we don't allow any electronics at elite team. So it's complete cutoff. And, and the parents have a real problem with that for some reason, because they're like, what if my kid gets hurt? Well, obviously I'm going we'll to let you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be in the newspaper. <laughs> so the parents, the parents have a problem and the kids have less of a problem, but it's still taking away this weird negative energy. And these kids at Elite Team become a different person a day and a half into camp. So instead of when they have any downtime, they're looking at a screen. When they have downtime at Elite Team, they're like, what, how can we do this obstacle course better? What can we jump off of? What can we, how can we do this differently? What can we do on this? this obstacle course that will be even more fun. So that's a big change that we've seen because the go-to in downtime is a phone. And when we all grew up, the go-to in downtime was like, what can we create outside that will, that what, what can we jump off of, right? And so that's something, one thing, the way I also explain it is we do a lot of hill sprints. It's, it's, it's anaerobic, it's power. It's capacity. So hill sprints are a big part of this. We used to do 10 hill sprints of like 50 to 100 yards. Now we do six hill sprints of 25 to 50 yards. The kids' athletic level has dropped. I can still take them two notches above during camp, but we're starting lower. And I think that's interesting. That's, that's very interesting. In traditional sports, I'm not calling skiing your traditional team sport, but traditional sports, we're seeing it left and right that we don't have three season athletes anymore. When, when we were growing up, the best athletes in the schools coming out of the schools were all three season. They played football or whatever. They played basketball and they played baseball. Or, that is not the case anymore. And I think it, that is showing in skiing also. Yeah, the specialization is, is, is a big problem in the youth sports of, of skiing, especially because you have these programs that are almost demanding these kids ski 150 days a year and do this and go to ski camps and everything. When, as you said, it used to be, okay, we're switching out of skiing. Now it's going to be baseball or lacrosse and then lacrosse moves into soccer soccer moves into football or or cross-country running and i played hockey until i was 13 so i was playing hockey from 5 a.m to 8 a.m and then i was skiing 8 a.m to 4 p.m and it gives you so much not only physically like skiing is going to help your basketball which is going to help your dancing which is going to help your skateboarding which is whatever so physically you need to do as many sports as possible, but also that mental, mental side of having a break. Thinking about skiing all year long, I would, I would have blown up. I needed to switch gears. Of, of course. Question for you. When you hit the hill for a competition, how did you maintain the focus during those intense races? And how do you parlay that into your students today? So... Mentally, I was so focused and I had a lot of great coaches that talked about goals, talked about breathing, talked about focus, talked about the process rather than the results. That's a big one. Kids are, are not only uber focused themselves on results, but they see it from their parents. So getting that focus down to the process. How did you ski today? One example of this before I go back to how I, how I stayed focused was when I get to the bottom, I'll go to ski races all the time these days. 
and I'll get to the bottom and I'll, I'll ask the kid, how'd you, how'd it go? How'd we ski? And they're like, I got third. I got 42.84. Well, third and 42.83 means nothing to me. Means absolutely nothing to me. I needed to hear, oh, I really attacked the top of this course. It was going well. Then I got behind and, and describe what happened, how you felt, how the run go, because the results and the time mean absolutely nothing. So that's, that's one thing. I don't know where I went, where, how I got onto that. But when I was young, it was all about imagery and visualization and focusing and how can I ski the best I can, can, how can I have that perfect run, which doesn't exist. And then I got to the bottom and of course I looked at the time. Of course I looked at the place, but then it was instantly, how can I get better? And so I don't know if that answered your question, but it was, it's a focus on process and ultimate goals rather than instant gratification and results. Well, in layman's terms, what I take, it's about the journey to the goal, not just the goal. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's an explanation that we try to teach the kids that the outcome goals, these expectations, these big goals, you don't have a lot of control over them. All you have control is this process to get there. Imagine, imagine skiing against, well, the easiest example is imagine being an, a woman athlete during the Schifrin era. Right. You could have, ski the best you've ever skied and still end up two seconds out in 42nd place yeah. because you can't control what Schifrin's doing, but you can control what you are doing. And if you have the best run, then you've actually won. It just so happens that you're in the race with Schifrin and she crushed you. Oh, yeah. Great way to put it. Now, Doug, I like to run. I, I get about four to five miles in a day. I'm very, very happy with that. Of course, I pale in comparison to my sister, who is a marathoner. She's got Berlin and New York City on her on her plate next. So we're all very proud, proud of her. But I want to introduce her to you because you are running a 100-mile running race in October. And not only that, this is your sixth. Tell us about getting prepared for the one of those. How does that go? How do you, how do you even start? How do you start? How do you train for 100 miles? Yeah, it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of running. Last week, <laughs> I ran 62 miles during the week. And that's a big, that's a high-mileage week. But let me go back to when I was at GMVS. I hated to run. We had to run a two-mile test. We had to run two miles in 12 minutes. And it was an up and down course. And I hated, that's as long as I would ever run, two minutes and three seconds just to slow down. <laughs> Boy, I hated running. It was all about power and, and, and strength and explosion. So I was not in love with running. And luckily through my career, knock on wood, I never blew out my knee. My body's super okay right now. And so I can run. So running to me has become this, this goal, this, this unreachable star up there where I want to push my self mentally and physically into the darkest and deepest areas of my soul <laughs> as possible to see if I can come out. So I did a hundred miler in Switzerland. It had 32,000 vertical feet over the hundred miles. That's a, that's a tough one. So if you're at Sugarbush, which is, I don't know, 2,700 square feet, let's call it 3,000, mm. over 100 miles, you run up and down Sugarbush 12 times, wow. right? So throughout that race, which took me 30 hours, I went down to some dark places like six or seven times. And that's the fun for me. How deep and dark can I get and then mentally get myself out of these holes? And it's very emotional. It's, it's super intense. And you have a lot of time to think about what's going on in your head, which can be dangerous, but also fun. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the long fish jams and the headphones. I'm Eric, treadmill for Eric, Eric I think, I think you can get a 50 miler out of it at least. Come on. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I, a 50 mile. I, I, I think I've already seen the deep, the deep, dark depths of my soul. I think I, I'm okay with those for a little bit. So, but I'll stick with my four to five miles for now. Thank you. I, I, I started out with the Burlington Marathon. Uh -huh. Because it went by my house twice. And I said, I had no problem just taking a bath and quitting, but I didn't. Quit. And then I went to the Vermont 50, which is a beautiful course down in the Scutney area. So I, I highly recommend it. And the best thing about long distance running, this ultra running that I'm doing is you don't have to go fast. Right. That's good. That's exactly you, what I'm into. You, it's called survival. Yeah. It's called survival. Well, we're heading into fall here, Doug. You're, you've got the elite team training that you're getting these world-class athletes out there and moving. 
going into fall, we all want to know what techniques and ideas you have for how the average listener can get ready for this season and being being prepared to have the best season ever. Any ideas? Yeah. Well, great question. And, and it doesn't involve the 100 miles. That's, Perfect. That's the, <laughs> I talk to a lot of, I coach a lot of masters and I love them and I coach a lot of people. And unfortunately, people will spend two grand on that new pair of skis and that new pair of skis may get them three tenths of a second faster, right? When all you need to do is find a rock that's about 15 pounds that are free everywhere in New England. And that's all you need. And instead of gaining three tenths of a second, you pick up that rock and you exercise. I guarantee you, you'll be a second faster or two seconds faster. All right. Because it's all about the physical fitness. Not only will it make you faster, we could talk about that, but it'll make you safer. Who wants to get hurt? Nobody. And the older we get, it's super easy. Our brains think we're 20, our body thinks we're 100, and that's really easy to get hurt. So the three, four things I would focus on is strength, because that's the basis, right? So you don't need a lot of weights. You don't need to go to a gym. A 15, 20 pound rock, if you do squats, if you do lunges, if you do presses, if you do, you can do core with the rock, Russian twist, that will improve strength. Strength gives you more control. More control makes you faster, makes you safer, whatever. So it's just about strength, getting out there a couple of days a week. Power, power is easy. You don't even need the rock. All you need is to a little bit of a hill. Do some sprints, some power sprints, some jumps, some burpees. Burpees are free and burpees will improve your power. And who doesn't want more power, right? Getting out of that turn, whether you're running NASTAR or whether you're on upper FIS at Sugarbush, you want that power to get yourself out of that turn. So strength, power, agility. Agility is easy. That's trail running. It's jumping rope. It's box jumping. It's just stretching the limits of that coordination. And you can do that anywhere. And then capacity. Capacity is all about just going on a bike ride, just hiking, hike up Sugarbush, hike up Mount Mansfield, hike up wherever your ski thing is. You hike up your mountain once a week, you're going to build capacity, which is going to make you safer all day long. So strength, power, agility, and capacity, all for the price of one rock. And you're going to be second faster if you're a racer. Guaranteed. Excellent. We, we here in New England, well, we hear less about it now, but we've heard a lot about pliability in the TB12 method of how to live your life as a, I don't know, multi-million dollar, six-time winning <laughs> quarterback. But how important is flexibility and mobility training to prevent injuries? And, and what do you recommend for stretching? Uh, you're asking the wrong person. I'm really, <laughs> really bad at flexibility and and stretching, I need to do more. It looks like you need uh, the TB12 lots. method. I think the book is on sale this week. Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, he's got a lot more hair than I do. <laughs> well, yes, I stretch. I work on my flexibility, but it's it's unfortunately not one of my focuses, but I should do it. I mean, anything with to do with just taking 10 minutes, right? It's important to warm up, but then you got any, a sun salutation, super easy. The pigeon, anything with your hips. As we grow older, the, the hips and core are where it all starts and where it all ends. So if you can do anything, I would work on those hips, whether it's lunges, pigeons, anything like that. But I'm I'm raising my hand as I need to work on my flexibility. So I'm probably not. <laughs> I, I can appreciate that. I spend a lot of time on a stand-up board in the summer, especially in the surf, and talk about core workout, hip workout, stability in the waves. It is an incredible way to build that core structure. Yeah. So what about off snow activities like balance boards and stuff like that? Any, any, anything like that help the average skier? Yeah. The, the agility coordination is so important. Again, it goes back to control. You want to get better in the trees. You have to be agile and coordinated, right? You want to get better in the moguls? Again, agility, agility, agility. And unfortunately, for probably the listeners, our age group, it's tough to work on agility. During COVID, I'd learned how to unicycle, right? It takes us a 14-year-old about a day and a half to learn how to unicycle. It took me a month and a half. <laughs> oh my God, I fell. And it's just tougher and tougher as we get older to learn and, and to... And to be perfect at the agility, but it's never too late to start. So 
agility exercises, rollerblading, anything single leg is agility, balance boards, boogie boards, getting two pairs of poles. Everybody has a lot of ski poles, right? You just make them into a tic-tac-toe design, right? Just two this way, two horizontal, two vertical, two horizontal. You start in the middle and you just jump out in a circle. That's the easiest thing. It's free. I'll tell you, it's hard as you can imagine. And just putting that into your routine before a strength workout is awesome. So anything that you can do that'll work your agility, work that coordination is going to make you a better, more controlled skier or rider this winter. And again, that's the goal. What about dietary? What, what sorts of things do you tell your, your athletes to stay away from? Obviously, there's sugar and alcohol and all that stuff, but what sorts of things should they be focusing on to kind of keep their body in check? Well, I will start off with the 80-20 rule that I believe in. 80% of the time, I am on the good diet, right? I'm eating the fruits and the vegetables and everything. 20%, you just got to have some fun, right? I just made Rice Krispie treats last night. All right. They're good for running, right? For that instant sugar. But Rice Krispie Treats, man, I'm into those. And I will take those out. So 80-20 is what I start with. The next level of that is when you shop, try to buy things that you need to go in your refrigerator. If it's in a package and goes in your closet or whatever, that's processed. That's something that's probably not that great for you. So think about having as much as what you shop go into that fridge. That's fruits and vegetables and dairy and fish and meat and anything. That's just a simple way to shop. Anything that you need to put in the refrigerator is going to be a fresher, more natural food to eat. So that's one thing to do. And then just focus on fruit and vegetables, 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 good, good, lean protein meats. I eat a lot of meat. I'm not, I eat everything, but I, we eat a lot of grass-fed beef and, and, and organic chicken, anything organic. So simple is better. Eat something raw, eat something that has to come out of the fridge. And, and that's the simplest way to think about it. When we talked about the, the kids, we explained what fats are. Fats get a bad rap. Fats are super important, especially healthy fats. So we talk about fats. We talk about protein, where they come from. We talk about carbs, slow carbs, fast carbs. Sugar gets a bad rap too, but as a, I hate to tell you this, but as a ultra runner for the about 50 miles, which is about 12 hours, my main intake of carbs is Coke. I mean, I'm not, I don't ever have Coke besides ultra running, but you got to really do your homework and figure out where the, the, the energy needs to come from on what you're doing. So it's super, it's super interesting. Just read books, listen to podcasts and nutrition is, it will change your life. What if I just put the Oreos in the fridge? Does that count? <laughs> yeah. If you dip them in milk, you get the dairy and protein <laughs> exactly. right there. But as long as you just did like a three mile walk and then you had your Oreos, you deserve it. Perfect. E exactly. <laughs> well, what do you see ahead this year for the U.S. ski team? ex-U.S. ski team member that you are. What are you thinking this coming season? I'm, I, what I just love about the ski team, and it's definitely changed. It's a, it's a whole lot more professional and awesome than when I was on it back 40 years ago. But we'll always be the underdog, right? We'll never have a deepest team as Austria or Switzerland, but we will always have someone who can win that race. I mean, we have Schiffer and she's a, she's, an outlier for sure. But all of a sudden you got Luke Winters in slalom and that guy from Steamboat, I forgot his name, but all of a sudden those guys on a big day race, we're underdogs. We, we could come through. We've got all these amazing women athletes on the female side. And, and again, we're not going to have the deepest team, unfortunately, but we will always have someone going for that win. And that's what makes me just love watching and supporting the U.S. ski team so much because we have these athletes who are going to surprise us because of the heart and soul and the kind of the underdog U.S. ski team feeling that we've, that we've always had. Now, if I stand on my soapbox a little bit, I think we're really lacking in that development process. Yes, we're awesome at the A and B team, but what are we doing at the U14 level, the U16 level to make sure that the athletes, 
that are at these ski clubs, wherever they are in the East and the West, when they get named to the U.S. ski team, they can ski. They have the skills and they have the mental ability. They have all the skills because the ski team should take the athletes and make them champions. The ski team is, shouldn't be in the process or in the, in the business of teaching skills. And so I think we're missing this, this opportunity at the lower level to teach more skills, to teach more grit, to teach more championship attributes in these younger kids. So when they get to the ski team, we can take them even farther. That's just what I see a little bit. Excellent. I have one more question for you, and it's, it's an easy one. Looking ahead, how do you envision the future of skiing and, and what do you hope to see for the sport in the future? Where are we going with this? Is it going to survive global warming? Is it going to be more welcoming to lower income families? I, I don't know. Do you have any sort of foresight for any sort of aspect of the sport? I just think skiing is a lifelong sport and it's a family sport, right? I still ski with my family and my friends, right? And then I met when I was GMVS and Middlebury Snowball. So it's a lifelong sport. So how do you start that? You start that as a kid. If you get a, a young kid to love the sport, how easy is it to love skiing? Just get him out on the snow, right? You're outside, you're pushing your limits. It's scary. It's fun. It's you're with your friends. I mean, all you got to do is get these kids out there and fall in love with skiing. And then they're going to have that love in them and they'll disappear and go to college or get a job, but then they come, they're going to teach their kids. And so to me, it's all about bringing new young skiers in because once you've, you've turned somebody onto skiing or riding, sorry, I'm bad at that. Once you turn it into skiing or riding, they're lifelong winter enthusiasts and they're going to, they're going to come back to it. And that's what we need. And so I think a focus on getting kids out, getting families out and making it super easy, whether that's, I know a lot of ski areas have that learn to ski that's free mm -hmm. because, and that works. You give them the, the equipment, you give them the lesson and you give them that ticket for a dollar for free for whatever you've just made a skier for life. And that's what I love because my best friends grow still now today are ones I grew up skiing. 100%. I, I've seen you in the marketplace enough and what you do with the kids. I applaud you and thank you. We need to grow the next generation because that's where sustainability is. And I will promise I'm not doing a hundred mile run. Okay. It, it's not happening. I will go ride a couple centuries for you on the road bike this fall. And that's, that's how I'll do my training. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all about two weeks. If you can do something for two weeks, it becomes a habit. Once it's a habit, it's part of your life. So just get out there. Century ride is amazing. I've only done two of those in my life. I've done more hundred mile run than I've done centuries on a, on a bike. But if, if you just, you know, your audience make a commitment right now, it's, it's August, it's September. Whenever this comes out, you've got two months of amazing opportunity to change your body and just 1% stronger. 2% more agile, 3% more powerful, you're going to enjoy your time on the snow so much more. And just a shout out to Vermont. I am coming east for the first two weeks in January. So I'm going to be back in Vermont. I'm going to be up at Jay. I'm going to be at Middlebury. I'm going to be at Oak Mountain in the middle of the Adirondacks. I'm coming back east, baby. And so I'd love to ski with anybody and everybody. Awesome. Love it. And and where can they find your schedule? Is that on the Elite Team? They you... can go to EliteTeam.com. It's spelled weird. It's E-L-I-T-E-A-M. That's a combo word, E-L-I-T-E-A-M. But the easiest way is for anybody over 25, reach me on Facebook. For anybody younger than 25, it's Elite Team Dig Deep on Instagram. Love it. Excellent. Love it. Doug, thank you so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me and keep doing what you're doing, getting people to fall in love with skiing. Once you've done that, you've made a skier for life. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Doug Lewis is our guest on the Basecamp podcast, and we'll be right back after this. Eric, every time I talk to Doug Lewis, he, ju he just raises my energy level. He's so passionate about what he does but the real thing 
that he left me with is that it's time to get moving. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad he said it and I'm not sitting here lecturing people because I don't know what, I don't know what the bleep I'm talking about, right? But I will say that after school ended in mid-June, I hopped on the treadmill every single day. And it was a focus of mine to do it, no matter what, where I was or what I was doing every single day. I have missed two days the entire summer. And I've seen my speed. I'm not concerned about pace. I'm not concerned about how many miles I can get done. I'm concerned about staying like in a general frame. Like if I get four to five miles, I'm good. If it's a 10, 30 mile, great. If it's a 14 minute mile, not great, but hey, I did it. And I think Doug is absolutely right. Get into the practice of doing it. If it's not, if it's not catching on after a couple of days, go a week, go two weeks, go three weeks. Within time, you are going to have it so, you know, you are in a cycle where you're eating well and you're exercising and you're seeing your weight drop a little bit or you're feeling stronger in your torso. I'm he is proof positive that that works. I mean, if, if you look at him, he's in, he's in peak physical condition. And I think that just his little hints, like getting the rock, is, is such a simplistic way to look at getting in shape. And I think that that's what we really need to do. Get simple about getting in shape. Do push-ups. You don't have to go to the gym for four hours, right? Do sit-ups. Get a rock. And I think that, that Doug saying that and, and putting people down that path is a great way to start here in September. Well, we we can all get a gym membership. We can all go to CrossFit. We can all do whatever. But the simplicity of the workout sometimes is the best. Right. I mean, Herschel Walker was a great example, wasn't he? Yep. I mean, wasn't he the one that did push-ups and sit-ups? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but the the moral of the story is... Ski season is almost here, unless, unless you're going to South America, it is here. It's time to start getting back in shape and call it, call it ski season New Year's resolution. Mm -hmm. uh, it's time to start working out, hiking, walking, bike riding, and building that core. And I, I can't, the core is the one thing that people miss. Because if you want to ski that steep line, that tree line, the bump line, the core is what keeps you neutral. And I concentrate wholeheartedly on core strength 100% because I know that's going to save my back. It's going to save my hips. It's going to save me. Right. I, I will. This is not tooting my own, own horn in any way, shape, or form, but... Facebook memories came, and usually they're atrocious. They're scary. Like, oh, my God, I did that six years ago. Please, I don't ever want to see that again. This one was from, I believe, it must have been 2011 because my son was only one years old, and we were walking on the beach in, on the Cape, and he was in my arm. And I was jacked. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like, when did I ever look like that? Kathleen reminded me that that was one of the seasons where I just went balls to the wall skiing every single day. It was, it was one of those 50-plus day seasons and it's amazing to look at that and, and how the skiing gets you in that shape but you have to be prepared for that right you have to be prepared to get into that mold i would never have been that jacked 12 years ago in, on a 30 30 something year old body if i hadn't been prepared if i hadn't done some sort of physical preparation whether that was be, be lifting weights or whether that be running or whether that be the, the elliptical which is a a tremendous machine for getting back in shape, particularly from someone who has gone, undergone ACL problems and tore their ACL. The elliptical is a great way to get your body into some sort of shape without, without really overdoing it on your legs. So those are just some, some quick thoughts. I mean, and I think the simplicity of it is important, right? Like, let's not overanalyze what we're doing. Let's not overanalyze what we're putting in our body. I think Doug Lewis, when he... I think I have the same exact kind of theory as Doug with the 80-20, right? I don't just don't, maybe mine's 60-40, maybe mine's 70-30, right? Eat well when you can, but it doesn't hurt you to have the ice cream, right? If you're going to, if you're going to be at Crescent Hill, right, which is, and look, I, lo I love my ice cream. I am a little bit picky about it. Crescent Ridge, 
down there in, was it Stoughton, Ava, Avon? You got me Sharon, on that one. I think Sharon, it's Stoughton, Sharon, Massachusetts, Crescent Ridge. Thanks, Okay, Dave. there you go. People, people will say, this is the best ice cream. This is the best. You got to go here. This is the best bar pizza. This is the best place to get wings. And a lot of the time, it's just whatever. I'll tell you what with Crescent Ridge. You go have an ice cream there. You're going to step by there and say, that might be the best ice cream cone I've ever had in my life. It, it does deliver. And so what I'm saying is, if you go to Crescent Ridge, okay, and you're preparing for ski season, and you're not going to get to Crescent Ridge again for another, call it a few weeks, a month, or whatever, get the Rocky Road. Just get the Rocky Road. It's worth it. Just know that 80% of the rest of the time, you're going to have to eat your lentils and your beans and your, your salads. And that's okay, because that ice cream is worth it. And it's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill your, your, your ski preparation whatsoever. I mean, hell, take it from a guy that was on the U.S. ski team for eight or nine years. Well, <clears throat> I love the 80-20 idea. We have a fridge full of fruits and veggies. We eat out of the fridge. I, I eat very little processed food. But I can guarantee you the 20%, I'm not giving up my dark and stormies in the summer or my bourbon in the winter. And I'm sure not giving up my beer. I, I was kidding about the Oreos, by the way. I don't need to put the Oreos in the fridge. And, and plus, by the time we get the Oreos in the house, they're gone within 45 minutes anyway. So I'm not really sure if there'd be any leftover for me. Well, I'm going to, I'm showing Eric something here. I, w I want him to read that number. I'm not doing 100 milers by running, but what's that number say? Eric. 0, 0.0 miles per hour. <laughs> oh, the other one, 346.78. So this is my challenge to Doug, okay? That was four days worth of riding, three 90-milers in a row, and a 76-miler to finish it up. Very impressive. So the bottom line is I'm not doing 100-mile running treks here. But I'll do it on a bike any day. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a 100-mile running. That's no problem. It'll be over 20 days, but I can get 100 miles done. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go get in shape. I'm just going to go pump iron. You're, you're going to the ice cream shop. Don't give me that. <laughs> it is on the way home, so who knows? Mike, thank you very much for this episode. Eric, that was fantastic. I hope everybody enjoyed having Doug on. He is a friend, but he's also a great, great person leading the charge in the ski industry and as he stated we need more skiers in the world and that's what he's shooting for and as he also stated he'll be in new england at the turn of the new year doing some some clinics at jp i believe he said he's starting out so that is mike Specian. i am eric wilbur that was this week's edition of the new england ski journal base camp podcast we'll see you soon New England Ski Journal's Basecamp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.